You are listening to National Security Law Today. The following program titled The AI Trap, The Missing Guardrails for Lawyers, was recorded on August 5th during the ABA annual meeting in Denver, Colorado. Sponsored by the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force and co-hosted by the Section of Science and Technology Law, the showcase program was moderated by Dina Temple-Raston, host and executive producer of Click Here, an award-winning weekly podcast on all things cyber and intelligence from Recorded Future News. Dina previously served on NPR's investigations team, focusing on breaking news stories, national security, technology, and social justice. She covered terrorism for the network for more than a decade, and hosted and created I'll Be Seeing You radio specials on surveillance technology. She is also the author of four books of narrative fiction, including A Death in Texas and The Jihad Next Door. Joining Dina on the program were Daza Greenwood, founder of Civics.com, a boutique provider of professional consultancy services for legal technologies, automated transactions, privacy and data management, and technology strategy. Lance Elliott, a globally recognized AI expert focusing on AI and law and AI and ethics. And Lucy Thompson, the founding principal of Livingston PLLC, where she focuses her practice at the intersection of law and technology on cybersecurity, global data privacy, compliance and risk management. We start the program with an introduction by ABA President Mary Smith. Welcome to our ABA Showcase Program on Artificial Intelligence, the AI Trap, the Missing Guardrails for Lawyers. Everywhere you look, there are references to AI. Some are enlightening and others are frightening. AI will transform virtually every industry sector, including legal practice, and reallocate the tasks performed by humans and machines. With every transformation, come complex and challenging legal and ethical questions for the legal profession. Most of you are familiar with the recent reports that a federal judge in New York sanctioned lawyers for, among other reasons, citing in a brief, non-existent cases created by ChatGPT. That case highlights the perils for lawyers of using a new technology they are not familiar with and do not fully understand. While AI has great potential, that case raises a red flag we can't ignore. Knowledge is key. This discussion won't ignore the tremendous possibilities of AI, but the message today is to understand the need to become familiar with how AI works, what advantages it can bring, and the risks it can create. It is not too soon to start. The experts on this program will discuss how AI could influence and change the practice of law and how we can address the many issues lawyers and judges will face as the use of AI is adopted across the globe. So let me ask this in terms of specifics, Lance. Um, Can you talk about um, something I've always wondered, which is, can AI own a patent? Because I thought sort of one of the fundamental, I'm not a lawyer, but I pretend to be one sometimes. I thought that one of the uh, sort of criteria to that is that you had to be human. So you've written in recently in Forbes about uh, the coming patent war. Talk about that. Sure. And uh, just two quick things, if I could, and then I'll jump right into that topic. So one is, uh, I speaking of being a, a non-lawyer, uh, 
I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I'm an AI expert and I have a great appreciation for the law. And I do a lot of work with law firms and also research in the area of AI and law. And the reason I bring that up is first, I want to thank you for inviting me to be here because at a uh, law or legal oriented conference, I usually kind of stand out in a way because I'm not a lawyer. So I just wanted to, to mention that and thank you for, for letting me be here. Uh, the uh, second item is if I could just real quick on the AI hallucinations. Mm. So one of the aspects that I've been very skeptical of and very concerned about is the way in which generative AI is often portrayed both in the media and also by the AI makers that lulls people into believing falsely that this AI is somehow sentient or sentient-like. And one of the simplest ways in which this is done, and as I say, I completely disagree with, is most of the generative AI applications, whether it's ChatGPT, as you mentioned, or it's Bard, which is Google's, or it's Claude or Claude 2 by Anthropic and so on, almost all of them, when you enter in a prompt with a question or request or a problem that you're trying to solve, when it produces or generates a narrative or essay in response to that, oftentimes the text says, I, I will tell you about how to solve that problem. And the very use of the word I, to me, implies some sense of sentience, right? That's what we use with humans. And so that alone right there is something that I'm very critical of and that all AI makers could easily switch around, right? It doesn't have to start out by saying I, it could say, here is an answer to your question or here is a way to solve it. And they problem. also have it type it out as if there's this being on the other end of the keyboard thinking and then typing it and it, you see it as opposed to it all coming out together, you see it typed by individual letters. Wow, they type fast. Well, so if I could just quickly add on to that. So these are all topics that you know are, are, are in my heart and I'm very passionate about. Uh, so many people don't realize that for some of the generative AI apps, when it tries to produce that essay or narrative or answer for you, it is, in some cases, computation. It's doing all these computational calculations and the way in which it's coded or written, it tries to show you the answer as it's being... Uh, figured out. But a lot of the time, that is not the case. What actually happens is the entire answer inside the system is composed, and then the AI maker has purposely, they dole it out to you, so it has that appearance, again, of as if you're interacting with a human who's typing or texting to you. So it's a great point, and I appreciate that, that you brought that up. I didn't mean to get you off. Yeah, so we'll go back we'll to go the, to the patents okay. now. So uh, on the topic of patents, there's kind of two, two major areas that, that, I, that I look at in, in terms of AI and patents. One is, can AI be the holder of a patent, which was the start of your question? And then the second part of that, kind of the part B, is patents that are related to AI. So I'll start with one, and, I, and I'll keep it quick. Uh, I'll start with one, and then I'll go to the other. So in terms of, can AI be an owner or holder of a patent? Well, this is a big legal controversy. Uh, some would say only once AI has crossed over into sentience can it do so. Thus, in a sense, it has achieved a, a semblance of legal personhood. Others say, no, that's not fair. The AI that we have today, even though non-sentient, is capable enough computationally that we should ascribe to it a sense of legal personhood. 
Now, so far, the easiest way to solve this in a sense, and it's kind of a cheap trick, some people would say, is that if the patent laws say that a patent holder or owner has to be a person or a human, then right there, you knock the AI out of it, right? So you don't even have to debate any further because you just say, well, look, by definition, the AI isn't a human and therefore it can't hold a patent. Uh, I'm sure this is a topic that we're going to visit and revisit and revisit, trying to figure out to what degree the level of caliber capability of the AI, does it rise close enough to some sense of legal personhood, or should we redefine what we mean by legal personhood to accommodate AI? So the part B, I'll just do quickly, which is patents that are AI related. So one of the uh, numbers that I, that I kind of quickly dug up, because I, I was curious about um, the frequency of it, and uh, high-tech, uh, overall, overall patents, high-tech accounts for nearly 70% of US patent litigation in the US. So it's a big topic. AI is obviously part of that. There are thousands of patents pertinent to AI, but there are also many other thousands of patents that are software-related patents that border onto the AI topic. What has not yet happened, which I've predicted is going to happen, is a wave of people waking up who have AI patents or so-called non-AI patents that are software patents, and they realize, wow, all this money is going to AI systems. Maybe some of those have infringed on my patent, and by gosh, I'm gonna go after them because of that. So I've predicted that we're gonna gradually see an awakening of that and a boon in that area, which so far you really haven't heard much about. And uh, last but not least, Lucy, do you have anything you wanna uh, talk about in terms of sort of setting the table for the conversation? Well, you were asking about these uh, cases against ChatGPT, and in addition to the ones that Daza was talking about, um, the writers and uh, actors who are on strike have sued ChatGPT for um, misappropriating their works. And so that's another legal issue that's going to come up. And then there have been some privacy lawsuits where individuals are saying that um, all sorts of personal information has been scraped from the web and um, put in the training data for ChatGPT. So those are other big areas of potential litigation. That's great. So Lance, let me go back to another specific, if I could. And that is, could you talk about the New York City audit law? First explain what it is and then, and then explain why it's important in this context. Sure. So New York City uh, has put in place a law, it's a relatively new law, which is considered the first of its kind. And so it'll be fascinating to watch and see how this plays out. It's called Local Law 144, and many people refer to it as the New York City AI Audit Law. And what the law referred, so the law was originally supposed to take place uh, in January of this year. And what happened was a lot of people, including myself, back in October, November, said, hey, watch out, this law has got all sorts of gotchas, loopholes, all sorts of sloppiness. Just, uh, it's a, it has a lot of things in it that are gonna really have adverse repercussions. And oftentimes lawmakers or regulators may not be aware of how to best craft a law in order to try to tighten it down and make sure that it doesn't have that kind of adverse effect. Well, so what happened was uh, New York City 
revisited the law and it just took effect uh, in July. So they actually delayed the law until July to try to kind of tighten it up. What it has to do with, many also call it the AI hiring law, which is kind of a misleading way to, to refer to it. Uh, when you use a computer system for employment-related purposes, whether for hiring purposes, firing purposes, or promotional promotion purposes inside of a company, so what might happen is an HR group might say, you know what, rather than just having our people directly in HR figure these things out, we're going to use an AI tool that will scan through resumes or that will conduct interviews or review interviews. Same thing for firing purposes. Maybe they use AI to figure out, okay, rate and rank people in the company and who should go, that kind of thing. Uh, this is broadly called uh, Automated Employment Decision Tools, AEDT. That's what it's called. So what this New York City law said was, anyone who employs someone in New York City so even if the company isn't based in New York City, if they employ someone in New York City, they have to have conducted by a third party an audit of their AEDT tool, which some call AI, and I kind of disagree with that, but we'll go with that for the moment, with their AI tool that's involved in this activity. And that's why I also said, some call it the AI hiring law, but that's kind of misleading because it also has to do with hiring, firing, and, and uh, promotion as well. Um, a key passage in this law is the following. It says that this law is pertinent if the AEDT substantially assists or replaces discretionary decision-making in those contexts. What we're going to have happen, I would easily anticipate. The law just got underway in July. You know for sure eventually someone's going to be seen as violating this law. The law contains very civil penalties, something like $1,500 a day for the company that is doing that, that hasn't had that third-party audit done. There'll be challenges to this, and then we're going to get around, we're going to get stuck on what does the sir, what does the meaning of assists or replaces substantially mean, right? <laughs> is that bigger than a bread box or smaller than a bread box? So there's a lot of other aspects in there that are also going to be questioned back and forth, as it'd be fascinating to see. The concept behind it is, this is a way of trying to clamp down and try to prevent an overreach by the use of technology related to employees and employee decisions. Okay. So Lucy, you're going to be sort of helping head an AI task force about this, and we've sort of set the table on how the law applies to AI. Is there anything else you want to you want to talk about that task force just a tiny bit and maybe anything else you want to add? And then we're going to shift the conversation a little bit to talk about how AI can actually help you in the firm. So Great. So one of Mary Smith's two signature projects coming up is an AI task force, which I chair. Um, we have about 50 experts who will be involved in it. And we're going to take a comprehensive look at AI and how it affects the legal profession, and the practice of law. And that includes a broad range of AI issues that I hope you all will be very interested in, including ethical issues, the use of AI in the courts, uh, risks that will be um, presented by AI, and how we can address those. That includes cyber, privacy, 
um, so how to create a trustworthy and reliable AI system. We're looking at access to justice and um, AI governance. And I know we'll continue to talk about that on this panel. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so, Daza, I want to go to you because one of your big interests is, um, I think it's pretty easy to make AI seem very evil and bad. Uh, and uh, I think that one of the interesting things that you're doing is actually showing it's not all evil and all bad. And there's some really nice applications for it, particularly in the, in the, in the law context uh, or the law firm context. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you. I, I, I would love to. I'll <laughs> Um, you know, I think the title of this um, this panel is the AI trap. I think the headline. Do you find that negative? I mean, it's part of the story. Okay. Um, but I think the headline uh, is you know the AI wow and the AI opportunity and the AI capabilities and what this new generation of AI makes possible that was we could never do before. So I, I've been like pecking away at using technology from when I used to practice law in-house counsel in the nineties, I tried to script everything. I wanted, you know, all the requests to come in. I wanted more better review of the procurement and everything like that. It's hard to apply the, this, uh, the previous tools of technology to law because law is so human. It's so much judgment. It's so much human language, not like, you know, structured data with inputs and outputs and like math. Not anymore. Um, at last, you know, we have a technology for us um, that is a large language model um, and that operates in ways that are not the same, to Lance's point, as human cognition. It doesn't understand the way humans do. But I encourage those of you who haven't tried the technology deeply to actually go in, like, don't put confidential client or rape or anything like that, but just, like, um, make up some names and come up and challenge it with a legal analysis, with, um, with, um, you know, coming up with, um, deposition questions with, with, with kind of hardcore legal work kind of stuff, give it sufficient information, in the prompt and see what it can do. It does legal, a kind of legal reasoning, um, by different methods. Um, but the results are very comparable to the, exactly the kind of stuff that we do. Um, and they're kind of what a younger associate would do. Well, yeah, I, I mean, in kind, the sort of process is well-suited. Um, and so to answer the question and then to go to your extremely on-point intervention about junior associate versus, you know, Well, seniors, just because it, uh, it writes questions for a journalist like an intern. Like an intern. Yeah, same in law. We um, love interns, but... We do. And we love junior associates because that's... But that's two out of the three questions may not be exact. Just so, yeah, and that's a very, so the first, I think, big news, though, um, exactly to like is trap the headline. I think the headline is, wow, this can act as, as a junior associate or an intern now. That is totally different. Um, I didn't think I would see this in my lifetime. Um, this is a major threshold in computation, um, and it's only getting better. It's getting more um, capable, and there's things we can do. The first so how are law firms using it? So I do a lot of uh, workshops and consulting, I guess we should talk. Um, we do similar stuff, um, including for, um, I'm in the middle of a big thing with Ernst & Young now, which is very, they've got a lot of law lawyers, but a lot of auditors, a lot of um, different professionals in merger and acquisition and consulting and so forth. 
Um, the, the types of things that you can do with this are well aligned to a lot of the busy work that we want to not have to do um, so we can be free, freed up to practice more at the top of our license. But also, it's good for a first draft, really good for a first draft. And did you know that when you're prompting this stuff, you don't just have to say, give me um, like a draft of this litigation strategy or this um, negotiation or this contract. You can say, give me five drafts and it does it just as fast. Give me five drafts that come at it very differently. You can type in success criteria and say, op give me drafts that, that meet these success criteria for what we're trying to optimize for. Maybe a deal that's faster or a deal that's higher quality. Everybody in the audience is writing this down. Good. Uh, yeah. Do it um, and try it and see. Um, I'm, I'm telling you how the, 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 that's Success the headline. Criteria. Success okay. criteria. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so anyway, having said all that, um, I think it's still pretty new. I'm seeing a lot of people do contract review and there's a lot of companies that are configuring uh, tailored pro um, products and services that fit in with contracts. I'm seeing a lot of um, mundane stuff that I wouldn't consider law practice per se, but it's something we all have to do. We have to do client communications. We have to do marketing. We have to do like mountains of email. This stuff is good at that, really good. Um, and then the only other thing I'd say is um, in the consulting, I'm starting to do um, what I'm calling legal prompt engineering. So it's like how to get good at prompts, prompt engineering in a legal context um, and some for audit as well. It turns out that similarly with a new intern um, or a junior associate, have you ever noticed how like some people can manage each interns well and other people not as well? If you learn how to use the technology well, you will get vastly better, higher quality outputs. And so the, actually the words matter. It's a word machine. So by typing in intelligently what it is you're seeking and giving it all the relevant information, Try this, like ask sort of like a five word question. You'll get something pretty good sort of in the neighborhood of what you're looking for. Then try a paragraph with all the relevant information, like as though you were instructing an intern and teaching them what matters because they don't know. You'll get way better outputs. Could I augment those comments? Uh, if it's possible, yes. Sure, sure. <laughs> so just to add to what you had to say, and I appreciate that you kind of set me up for this in a way. Uh, the, uh, so what, one of the comments you made, which is a very important one, is that the idea of not entering confidential information into generative AI apps. And part of the reason why you don't want to do that is most of the AI makers, if you look at their licensing stipulations, and it surprises me, you know, I'm not surprised that the average person, lay person, doesn't look at the licensing, but I'm oftentimes taken aback or saddened when I work with attorneys who didn't look at the licensing stipulations. Mm. And the licensing stipulations for most of the AI makers say that they reserve the right to be able to use whatever you've entered as into the generative AI. They'll sometimes add a wrinkle to it, like they'll say, and the reason we're doing so is it allows us to potentially improve our AI system. Now, I'm eagerly awaiting to see once that gets pressed on down the road, whether that's going to be a, a suitable escape hatch for them or not. But in any case, so if you enter confidential information in there, they say they reserve the right to be able to look at that information and be able to reuse that information, which obviously compromises the confidentiality of it. Now, where that also relates to attorneys and, and what I advise them when I go into law firms and so on is think of the attorney-client privilege. 
Supposing you're judiciously, carefully, mindfully guarding that privilege with your clients, and then you lo and behold decide on a lark to use a generative AI app, you enter in client confidential information. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but the question is, will you have in some way potentially violated or undermined the attorney-client privilege? Likewise, if your client goes in to use generative AI, and maybe they're thinking, oh, you know what? Yeah, I'm getting legal advice from my attorney, but I wonder what this generative AI app has to say, and they enter their information, does that again affect that? So I'm not able to answer that question, but it's a question I think that's worth considering. Now, the other half topic- Second, sorry. Second, Lucy, and you're yeah, not- Yeah, so adding on to that, another important potential benefit of AI is in the access to justice area. And um, Jim Sandman, who's a former uh, chair of the Legal Services Corporation, is gonna be leading the task force effort in that respect. And 70% of people in the US don't have appropriate legal, um, a lawyer or um, access to legal advice. So this is an area that we will be exploring in depth. And then the courts are using AI to inform people about procedures that may be confusing to them or to make their, their uh, work more efficient. So there's huge benefits out there that um, hopefully will be uh, very helpful to the legal profession. Excellent. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt oh, your point. Hey, so go ahead. Thank you for those points. And just a real quick one on that, and then I'll come back to the uh, the use of uh, generative AI by, by lawyers for legal tasks. Uh, one aspect you may be familiar with is the ABA did a nice, uh, great study on legal deserts. And the idea is that if you look throughout the U.S. in terms of a attorneys per capita, there are many areas geographically of the U.S., for which there is a scarcity of uh, legal talent available. Therefore, what potentially happens is those people in those areas are not able to fully exercise their rights because they don't have ready access to attorneys. The thinking is that if you have an AI system that can perform legal tasks on a semi-autonomous or autonomous basis, Think of what that does in terms of access to legal services or legal advice. You know, now, this also brings up jurisdictional questions and multi-jurisdictional questions. But in any case, it's a great point that you make about some people think that AI may help to democratize the law. That's what some are kind of hoping for. Now, back to the legal tasks at hand. So I always kind of have a handful, five minutes particularly, I say, if you're gonna use generative AI and use it in a wise way, you know, don't enter confidential information, don't enter private information, et cetera, et cetera. So that's an important caveat. Let's just start there, okay? If you thought that through and then you're gonna use generative AI, the five ways that I always suggest that you use it, the first is legal brainstorming. What I mean by that is you're thinking about a legal problem, you're unsure which way to go on it, you can ask generative AI, generally about that topic. Now, again, you may get legal nonsense. You may get, as we talked before, about the AI hallucinations. You may get the AI saying things that make no sense at all that are even contrary to the law. So you have to be very, very careful of that. But if you're cautious about it, it could also at the same time spur or spark ideas about a legal matter that you're dealing with that you might not otherwise have faced. Number two, drafting legal briefs. 
and contracts, which you kind of mentioned. Number three, reviewing legal narratives that you could feed into it and say, review this for me. Number four, summarizing legal narratives. So let's say you have a very long legal document and you want to kind of condense it down and do a recap or summary of it. You could use it for that. Keep my caveats in mind. You know, it may or may not do that well, so you'd want to double check it. And the fifth one is converting legalese into plain language. So if you're thinking, oh, I want to take something I've written and I want to share that with a client who doesn't understand the law, you might be able to use it for that purpose. What Again, would be the prompt for that? Hmm? Please change my legalese into plain English. What would be the... Exactly along those lines. It, 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 the prompt could be very widely varied. It, you could just simply say, uh, take this and, and convert it into uh, plain language. Mm -hmm. You can say open language. You get like there's a lot of different ways or, you can do it. Or take my plain language and turn it into legalese. You could do that too. Yeah. I, I Less guess, popular, I guess. Well, also what I would say is mm -hmm. it is it is less the generative AI that we have today is less likely to be able to do that in the than in the other direction. Sure. And if I could just quickly respond sure. to that. So the generative AI, and you mentioned this too, the way in which it's been data trained is they went out to the internet, scanned millions upon millions of files and documents, and I'll focus on text and I'll leave images out for the moment, okay. Looking for text and it found all this text and what it did is it did a massive computational pattern matching on all that text. So in a way, generative AI today is based on across the board use of natural language. And that's why it could potentially take something that's legalese and convert it into plain text. Now it's not honed as yet typically towards the legal side per se, but there's a lot of efforts underway to do that. In other words, to take the legal domain specifically do that same kind of computational pattern matching on the legal domain, and then add that to, or have it included with, or add it on to this kind of generic natural language capability. So they just ingest Westlaw, or uh, in a sense, the the one of the big issues also that we're faced with, and again, I know the ABA has covered this, and and I and I appreciate that they have, is trying to find all this legal data is a lot harder than you might think. Number one, there can be a cost involved to accessing it. Number two, a lot of the legal data, like various legal cases, you may not find readily online. It may be in paper-based format or it might be offline. Also, a lot of it is oftentimes in different formats. So there's a lot of logistics and cost involved in trying to get towards a generative AI that is specifically honed to the law. But on the other hand, there's a lot of people that believe, well, there's a big payoff in that. Right. So the question is, okay, is it the cost and effort to get there going to be worth it depending on your outlook of how that would then be used? I got you. So one of the things that people are always talking about is whether or not um, AI is going to remove the need for associates who draft and review documents, journalists who write podcast scripts. Um, what do you think does it? Yep. No, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. Um, this, well, I shouldn't be absolute. Um, so I think there are, I mean, I am already aware of some cases where there's been force reduction um, a little bit, um, but I don't, and I am highly confident that, um, you know, humans are going to keep being born and keep going to work. Um, and what we're going to do is use this technology um, and it's going to extend our cognition, it's going to extend our capabilities 
um, and new roles are going to emerge as well. Um, but for the foreseeable future, so if we, I think it's helpful to think in terms of time. This is, this is really important technology. It's profoundly different from what we've ever had before. We're just beginning to grapple with how to apply it and how to transform um, types of work and um, services and new kinds of products, whole new business models, whole new sources of value. We can get into this later, but um, but for the first, but if we think the next, I think it's helpful to think, what about the next year until August of 2024? What about like three to five years? And then what about 10 years? This total transformation stuff is for 10 years, which is a long, long time from now in your know, technology dog years. But um, <laughs> in, for one year, we already know what's happening. The, the interns are in, uh, I think, in, in, uh, in, in work environments that are um, wisely recognizing the importance and the here to stay of this technology are embracing it and marbling it in as part of the training and the teaching of new hires and interns. Even in, in school, uh, when I sometimes still teach, um, I actually include a requirement to use different models, ChatGPT, Anthropic, and BARD. I, I tell them what, what I want them to get from it. I ask them to show the prompts afterwards, I ask them to show what the output was and how they critically analyze the output and how they put it into their final assignment. Um, we have to show people how to use this stuff. And also, we there's no way to get senior associates and partners unless we have junior associates. So it's just like, we have to, we, we, you know, there's that's just critical. Meanwhile, we have to make sure that we're maintaining the, the old ways that we can almost call it now, or soon we can call them the old ways, which are the ways we all know when we came up, when we learned, when we practice law, it's the way that most things exist still today of manually going through things um, and, and what it looks like to do a, a legal analysis and identify the issue and do a client thing. We have to maintain that on a tr certain track, basically without AI. I, it's the only way I would know how to do that so that people know what to benchmark the AI outputs against and also that they know how to successfully prompt it. The only final thing I want to say is um, on that last awesome interchange about... Um, you know, tur turning things into legalese and how the technology is general. It's trained on all human knowledge, practically, of which law is just a, a small part, which is why you maybe it's better going to play like English. Interestingly, there's a ton of law in there. And so just here's a pro tip for you all. Um, you can prompt it better to zero in on the legal corpus that's part of its whole training set and get way better legal oriented stuff. So if you kind of use the right, incant the right words, like this is a tort case and this is the cause of action. These are the things we want to prove. And this is the situation. It's going to zero in on those patterns, the, the right data on the right vectors and matrices and do a kind of, it sees the shape of concepts in a certain way and it will identify the right concepts and apply them to the output. This is really important. So if you prompt it better, you'll get in, in the neighborhood and maybe like right at the street address of the output you're looking for. Wow. Could I uh, further augment uh, some of those great points? That sure, just a little bit. I want to get to oh. the Mata case, okay. yeah, which I think is... That. That's such a bummer though. Okay. <laughs> um, which you can always come back, just bridge whatever question I ask and answer whatever you want to answer. Uh, but I, I just want to bring Lucy in here. Uh, and 
the Mata case is the cautionary tale. So can you just give us a really brief summary of what the Mata, does everybody know what the Mata case is? Ah, excellent. Well, everybody knows that lawyers were sanctioned for using chat GPT, but just very briefly, it's important to understand the context of that case because it was a simple tort case involving a passenger who was injured on a plane flight and the case was filed in state court and then it was moved to federal court in New York City and then it ended up in bankruptcy. So the lawyers were in a small firm and they didn't even have a LexisNexis or Westlaw account. So the lawyer decided he would do his legal research on ChatGPT and he didn't realize that this is not a legal research tool. So ChatGPT produced several cases that actually had the names of real judges, the names of cases and decisions that didn't exist. So the judge put those in a brief and sent them to this federal judge who said, and the other side, the Avianca Airline attorneys, looked for the cases and said, we can't find these cases. So the judge said, well, I want you to verify the cases. And the lawyer said, oh, I checked with ChatGPT, and these are real. So the judge said, well, wait a minute, what about these cases? So there was a lot of back and forth, and this, this lawyer um, stood by these ChatGPT cases. So then there was some bad faith involved. So the sanctions were not just for using ChatGPT, but for lying to the judge about whether the lawyer was available or on vacation. But anyway, the heart of the matter was that the, the lawyer was um, dug in about defending these chat GPT cases. So finally, the, the judge got very fed up and sanctioned the, the owner of the law firm and three, three lawyers. And so this is the perils of using new technology the lawyers don't fully understand or are not familiar with. And the AI task force has already written a paper about what are the factors that lawyers should consider when they use new technology and what should they know about before they delve into um, an area that uh, gets them into such trouble. And, and the remedies in the Mata case are actually uh, kind of interesting. The lawyer had to send letters to plaintiffs and lawyers to apologize for implicating them in false opinions and had a $5,000 fine. What do you guys think of those remedies? Which, interestingly, it was like even more humiliating. Uh, they had to send the letters to the judges who purportedly came up with these cases, which is you know, not a good look if you're practicing before that judge again. But chat, um, chat GPT can write those letters really quickly. Yeah. You're- <laughs> <laughs> Please draft an extremely contrite. (laughs) Um, I think that those were relatively light penalties based on fundamentally what happened, as was just explained. Um, And that it's one thing to imagine that the attorney just hadn't got the news yet upon first using the tool and using it. Um, You know, that's it's strange credulity, but let's just say it's possible. Um, When the Judge came back to say these aren't apparently real cases, and you and your um, and the counterparty's counsel have questioned the reality. To then double down and to sort of like have ChatGPT fabricate the cases—that's that was the main thing I think mm-hmm. that was cited as part of bad faith. 
Um, it wasn't just lying about vacations and things like that. So I think there's a lot going on here that relates to just law practice and integrity and the rules of ethics. Uh, and um, I think the penalties were a bit light. I think it was useful to have that case just to make sure everybody, like, Gosh, have you heard the news? Like, like it's this, you can't rely on this. We still have to actually practice law. Like, read the case. Um, shepherdize it. Is it still good law? Does, does any of this sound familiar? Um, and so the, the last thing I would just say is that, um, uh, I well, actually, I'll, I'll leave it right there. I don't so want to dwell I, on I, this case, honestly. Uh, I... I I just want to ask two other quick quick questions, and then we'll go to the audience. Well, could I? Let me just ask these two other sure. quick questions because we were on a bit of a clock. And so one of one of the issues is is that you know law firms actually do judge shopping occasionally, or and I, AI does incredible predictive analysis. I mean, do you think law firms should be using AI to do that kind of analysis and? Um, you know, France made that illegal in 2019. So um, how do you feel about uh, AI doing form and judge shopping? And maybe we'd just do like a little bit of a lightning round. Tell me, uh, we'll go all the way down the line. Do you start, Dessa? You know, I, I think it's good to work backwards from trying to win um, and using, you know, tools that are legal and ethical um, to to zealously advocate the interests of our clients, which is to win in that context by the time you go back to it's better to avoid litigation in my world, but if you're there, then try to win. Um, and so uh, then the question is um, how to use it. And I, I should probably mention um, this generative AI, which was, I think, more of the focus of what we're doing. I, I haven't noticed that it's like that great at some of this stuff. It's some of the other kind of stuff that like Lex Mackin and other folks have done other types of like psychodemographic profiling against cases and time of day and everything else to do more prediction of of what judges and, jur and jurors and others are likely to do. So it's maybe a different class that's really well tuned to this, but yeah, you know, the right tool for the job. And I don't, I think it's long, I don't, I'm, not, I'm unaware of in the United States context with our culture, any reason why that would not be seemly. I mean, we would, we do it on whiteboards. We do it with consultants. Like, why wouldn't we use the best tool for the job? What do you think, Lance? Uh, so the, uh, I concur completely with your remarks that in the U.S., uh, there's a sense of a willingness of transparency about our judicial system. And so as a result, the nature of judges' opinions are usually available in one fashion or another, while in some other countries, sometimes the judges' opinions are either cloaked or, or uh, it's said to be the opinion of the court and there's no judge assigned to it and so on. Now, the other thing about this whole area is... Some people are just awakening to this idea of using AI to do this prediction about what judges' decisions might be or might come out to be. But the, the reality is legal judgment prediction, LJP, is an area of study that's been going on for years and years and years. And you know, 20 years ago, I was using computer systems, using regression, uh, cluster analysis, factor analysis, and so on, conventional statistical techniques to try to do that kind of analysis about judge opinions over time to be able to get a sense and give the leg up to law firms and lawyers, what do you think this judge is going to do? Or is, is sometimes the other way to do it too is, is the shopping you know, for, for, for a judge kind of an idea. The AI part being added into it does help a great deal and helps elevate this. For example, and I'll be just real quick, sentiment anal analysis and opinion mining is really 
kind of added into this by the use of the AI side of things. So I just wanted to emphasize legal judgment prediction is an area of study that, and practice that's used, has been used for a long time. And what we're seeing now is by adding AI into it, that you can kind of take it to the next level. And you so have- this, this question raises an important question for the legal profession, which is, is AI going to increase the justice gap? So are the wealthier clients and law firms going to have this opportunity to use predictive tools and research tools? And the people who aren't as wealthy will not have the, these resources. And this is a really serious question that we all should think about as we go forward. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to watch the full program, visit the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force website, also linked in this episode description. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.